Lord, we do pray tonight that as you hear our affection for you, Lord, we know that ultimately we are solely dependent on your kindness and affection for us. Nothing we do could merit your salvation. Nothing we could do would be worthy or live up uh, to the high weight of your calling, Lord. We need your presence to even begin to do that. Lord, would you fill us again? Like Aaron was just singing, would you shape our hearts? Would you transform us by the power of your very spirit that dwells in us, the same spirit that hovered over the waters at creation, ready and active to move? Would you move again in our hearts? Lord, let us hear from your word. Give me the words to speak tonight. We would all learn something, pull something from your word as we go through these chapters. Thank you for preserving a remnant. Thank you that despite judgment, there was salvation. That in the midst of judgment, you saved a righteous man so that we would not be destroyed from the face of the earth. We praise you for that. Oh God of goodness. Oh God of kindness. We pray all these things in the precious name of your Son, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> well, tonight we continue our study in Genesis. We've made it up to chapter 7. So we're still in this early going of, of this book. We're still in the beginning stages. And if you remember early on, I told you that Genesis kind of breaks down into these two sections, two major sections. And that's really 1 to 11, which is kind of this prehistory. And then 12 to 50, the rest of Genesis, is about the patriarchs. And that's kind of the major division of the book. So we're still early going. But really, there's a, a pivotal transitional figure that kind of leads us from prehistory into the patriarchs, and that is Noah, who we've been studying, right? Who we talked about last week, this righteous man who's preserved in judgment, who's, who's saved despite the judgment that's coming. And tonight we read about the judgment. We've got a long passage tonight. We're going from 7.6 all the way to 9.17. So we're going to cover a lot of content, but one of the things I think uh, Christians miss sometimes is we get so weighed down in, in little details or little words, we, we miss larger sections of Scripture, and I think that's important. Because these are not just um, random grab-bag moral stories, right? This is, this is the narrative of humanity's history, right? This is a, a story from beginning to end that tells what God is doing with humanity. And, and we will miss it if we don't see how all these pieces are connected. And one of the ways you see the connection is to look at larger chunks. And so tonight we're going to go over basically two chapters, two chapters worth of material. So we'll start in 7.6 where we left off last week, right before Noah's about to enter. 
and we'll end uh, with the flood being over. We'll end with what Noah does when he leaves the ark. Okay? And, and we'll have, a, a, you know, the, the tragic story we'll save for another week. But we'll look at this story for now, and we'll think about uh, what comes with, with Noah's own sin later. We'll think about that in relation to the nations that come from him in Genesis 10, right? It's that story of Noah's uh, sin and the, the curse on Canaan that really helps us understand Genesis 10 and 11, what's going on in those. And so we'll talk about those next week. But for this week, we start in Genesis 7. I've named this week recreation. And that's why I put that little dash in there because I didn't want you to think I was saying recreation. <laughs> right? I didn't want you to think that, hey, we're going to talk about you know having a nice time going golf like Tyler likes to do. Uh, no, this is recreation. Recreation. Something is happening in the flood narrative that I think most people miss. That most people miss. And I'll talk about it when we get there. But tonight we're going to start, and I'm actually going to read a larger section. And I'm not going to go back over all of it, but I'm just going to make some notes. But to get through this amount of content, I want to read it to you. So I'm going to read the rest of chapter 7. And then we'll talk a few things about uh, what God is saying to us in it. Starting in verse 6 of Genesis 7, Now Noah was 600 years old when the flood of water came upon the earth. Then Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him entered the ark because of the water of the flood. Of clean animals and animals that are not clean, and birds and everything that creeps on the ground, there went into the ark to Noah by twos, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. It came about after the seven days that the water of the flood came upon the earth. The Lord had just said earlier, last week we read, that in seven days he was going to bring the flood. So this week's time passes and the waters come. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day all the fountains of the great deep burst open and the floodgates of the sky were opened. The rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark, they and every beast after its kind, and all the cattle after their kind, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, all sorts of birds, so they went into the ark to Noah by twos of all flesh, in which was the breath of life. Those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered as God had commanded him, and the Lord closed it behind him. Then the flood came upon the earth for forty days, and the water increased and lifted up the ark, so that it rose above the earth. The water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. The, water. the water prevailed more and more upon the earth, so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. The water prevailed 15 cubits higher, and the mountains were covered. All flesh that moved on the earth perished, birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth and all mankind. Of all that was on the dry land, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, died. 
Thus he blotted out, he being the Lord, blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, and they were blotted out from the earth. And only Noah was left, together with those that were with him in the ark. The water prevailed upon the earth one hundred and fifty days. Now, there's moments of incredible grace in this awful story. Awful story. Think about that. Think about the power of, of the water. The power of the ocean. The power of the seas. It is a force that even to this day, humans have not tamed. We've learned to ride upon it. We've learned to, to explore it to an extent. Though, though the fact I always hear is that we know less about our own oceans than we do about the surface of the moon. Have you ever heard that fact? Right? That's a, a fact that gets thrown around a lot. Our oceans are deep and mysterious and powerful, and we have not been able to tame them. There is basically no force on earth that is as powerful as water. The power of the oceans. Right? We have done our best to tame it and make things like hydroelectric dams and use water to power things. That We have done a lot, but we cannot conquer it. It's powerful. And think about the helplessness. I, I don't know. If, if you've ever been in water, it's scary. It's a scary thing. You know, to be in a pool of three and a half feet, you're, you're like, you feel pretty comfortable. But I think back to when, like, little kids learn to swim. It is terrifying. Because it is so much greater than you. You have no power over it. And, and even today, right? Like, still... Uh, I actually read this statistic. Still, the, I think the most dangerous do- job, the, the most life lost in American jobs, is still, number one, fishermen, fishing industry, people who go out on vessels and do fishing. Why? Well, it's not because they're, like, getting cut, slitting a fish or something. They, it's about the ocean. It's because they fall in, they drown. This is an unbelievable force. And if you think about water covering the surface of the earth. I mean, there's no escape. There's no escape. This is a horrific scene. And you can just imagine Noah and his sons and his sons' wives and his wife all in the ark and all around them is probably death. Bodies of animals and people floating in the ocean. I mean, how horrifying. This is judgment, and, and we, don't, we don't tend to look at how severe this is, how, how big this judgment is on humanity. The Lord, at least seemingly, is done with it. He's done. But even in the midst of this great judgment, there is grace. One piece of, uh, of, of grace, I think, is you have this beautiful sentiment uh, that the Lord himself closes Noah into the ark. It's not that Noah's commanded to close the door and he closes it. No, it says the Lord himself shuts Noah in. It's the Lord protecting the one who's found his favor. God is with him, watching over him, protecting him. Right? The other thing that tends to get missed, and we'll talk about this more in a minute, but what is going on here? The Lord is decreating. He's decreating. 
I'm going to show you the next verse, and then we'll talk about that a little more. But all of this has been leading up to something. There's a climax in this story, and the climax of the story is the very next verse we read. We just read that the water has prevailed. Even the mountaintops are covered in water. And the climax of the story is this next verse, Genesis 8.1. It says this. Sorry, I'll go back to it. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. And God caused a wind to pass over the earth and the water subsided. God remembers Noah and he remembers the people with him and he remembers the animal. That's the climax of the story. Because when God remembers something, we, he doesn't remember like man does. Right? When we think of remembrance, we think about recalling something. We think about sitting down and thinking. I was like, oh man, that, that's really interesting. Yeah, you know, I, Noah, he must still be on that boat. I kind of forgot about him. I remember it. That's not what's going on. Remembrance for God is an action. He's about to do something. Whenever you see the Lord remember in the scriptures, he's about to do a work. He's about to do a work, and usually a mighty work of deliverance. The Lord's about to act, and what happens is because God remembers, he sends this wind to pass over the earth. And this wind that will pass over the earth and what? Cause the water to recede. It's going to cause it to go down. What's so interesting about this and what we do, often don't notice, what I'm, I'm talking about, decreation, when the Lord's undoing what he's made. We don't think about the flood and, and what that's saying, right? Why a flood? Why is that the judgment? Remember Genesis 1? Remember the beginning of Genesis 1? Where did we find the Spirit of God? Hovering over the waters. The watery deep. The Lord is decreating. Here's Genesis 1-2. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And then what does God go on to do in Genesis 1? He separates the waters above the expanse from the waters under expanse. And then he pulls the waters back and creates dry land. Right? That's the passage of Genesis 1. In Genesis 7, he's undoing that. The waters take over the dry land, and they take over the mountains, and they become the whole surface of the earth. So that, once again, the Spirit of God hovers over the surface of the waters. It's a clear allusion to Genesis 1. It's a clear allusion to Genesis 1. What God had done in those first six chapters, He's going to undo. He's decreating. That's a tragedy. And I think we, we often miss that that's what's going on in the story. The Lord is uncreating everything. He's decreating it by letting the waters consume it all. And it's back to Genesis 1-2. Here's another uh, reason that, that I think is a confirmation of that, right? Look at this verse here, 8-1, right? 
The Lord, it says, when he remembered Noah and all the beasts, he caused a wind to pass over the earth. The Hebrew word for wind is ruach. It's a great word. Ruach. Does anyone know what the other common translation of ruach is? Spirit. Spirit, breath, or wind. It's used for all three. This could just as easily be translated, God caused spirit to pass over the earth. That's a clear allusion to Genesis 1-2. 1-2 uses the same word. The ruach of God is hovering over the waters. Right? But here it's translated wind, which is a fair translation. I'm not denying that as a good translation. I'm just saying it could be translated in a way that clearly reflects Genesis 1-2. Right? The Lord once again sends his spirit over the waters to begin what? Recreation. He's decreated everything from Genesis 7 to the end of the chapter. Right? From Genesis 7-1 to the end of the chapter. He's undone creation. And so when we get to 8-1 and he remembers Noah, what does he do? In response to remembering Noah, he recreates creation. It's a second beginning. Which makes Noah what? A new Adam. A new Adam. Noah becomes the first of his kind again. The whole account is set up to show you that the Lord is beginning a second time. Right? This is a new beginning for humanity. The whole point is, hey, let's see what happens. If you're reading this narrative, the point is, let's see what happens. Maybe Noah, because he's such a good guy, he, you know, he's a righteous man, blameless among his, his contemporaries. He walks with God. Maybe if we start over with him, things will go right. A new beginning, a second chance, with a new Adam named Noah, and with a new creation that the Lord has, is going to recreate. And of course, next week, we'll see if things turn out any different. We'll see that. But here we are, and, and, and the Lord is recreating creation in chapter 8. The narrative is set uh, in, in a unique way. Because it's, it's a specific Hebrew and really Greek um, storytelling device. And it's called a chiasm. And it means that there's kind of parallel portions that line up with each other from each end of the story. And the reason that they use this technique of storytelling is because you know whatever is right at the center is the thing that's being highlighted. It's the thing that's the major point. It's the major theme. It's, it's the most important thing to get. Right, And so you end up having this, this, what's called a chiasm, where you have seven days until the flood, 40 days of rain, and 150 days of water filling the earth. And then the story reverses those patterns by saying, then there's 150 days of water receding from the earth, 40 days of waiting before Noah sends out the raven and the dove, and then seven days waiting for the land to dry. Now that actually happens three times. But again, it shows how important Genesis 8.1 is. Because where does Genesis 8.1 fall? Right here. Genesis 8.1 is the center point of this literary device. 
And the reason is because Genesis 8.1 is supposed to be the most important part of the story. God remembering the one who he showed favor to. It's the key factor of the story of the flood. God remembers Noah and the humans and the animals that are with him in the ark. So I'm going to paraphrase some of this just so we're not reading all of it. But what ends up happening, like I said, in this pattern is you have this period of waiting still for the water to recede. And it goes down below the mountains. So you're still very high water level, but it's down below the the tops of the mountains. And so after 40 days of waiting, Noah, he can see the mountaintops and he's waited for 40 days. He sends out a raven. And this raven, it just goes to and fro and it never comes back to him. It just keeps going back and forth. And it never returns to him. And so he decides to send out a dove instead. So he sends out a dove. And this dove goes out and about and can't find, interestingly, it can't find a resting place. It's, it's, a, it's a poetic device. It's a, almost a pun. Right? A resting place. What does Noah mean? What did I tell you Noah meant? Noach. It means to rest. And the bird cannot find Manoach, a place to rest. The bird finds no resting place. And so what does it do? It goes back to Noah, the place of rest, its place of rest. So what the bird comes back, returns to Noah, and Noah says he reaches his hand out and takes the bird back into him. It's a really tender moment. He, he receives the bird, takes it back into him. And he waits seven days. Interestingly, Noah seems to be operating on a weak cycle. Maybe that's supposed to be implying that he keeps Sabbath. I don't know. But he works on a seven-day cycle. He waits seven days and sends the bird out again, the dove. And it goes out, and what's it find? A freshly plucked olive leaf, right? The symbol of peace. You've seen it many times. Even to this day, right? They use that symbol as the symbol of peace, a a dove with an olive leaf in in its mouth, right? And so it comes back to Noah. And Noah waits another week. He's like, okay, it's starting to dry out. And he waits one more week. And that third time he sends the dove out, and what happens? The dove does not return to him. Why? Because it goes out to live its life. And so that's the sign to Noah. He says, the the earth has dried, and now I can leave. So he takes off the covering from the ark, and he gets ready to disembark. He gets ready to get off. And the Lord speaks to him. And this is where we want to focus. The Lord says some really powerful things to him. Okay? God spoke to Noah, saying, we're still in Genesis 8, verse 15, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds, animals, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may breed abundantly on the earth, and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Remember, I just told you, this is recreation. This is another point that seems to point to that interpretation, doesn't it? Who got this mandate? Adam did. The Lord is re-speaking the creation mandate to Noah. Be fruitful and multiply. This is a new chance. Be fruitful and multiply on the earth again. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by their families from the ark. And then Noah, he does something really 
beautiful. He builds an altar to the Lord. This is the first time in Scripture that an altar is built. Now, presumably Abel and Cain do it, but it's never mentioned in the narrative. It's never said they build an altar. The first time you hear of an altar being built is this moment with Noah. He builds an altar to the Lord, and he takes one of every uh, clean animal and of every clean bird, and he offers burnt offerings on the altar. This novel event. And it says, The Lord smelled the soothing aroma. And the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Now again, this is a really significant moment that I think we brush by too quickly. What did the Lord just say here? I will never curse the ground on account of man again. For what reason? Because they're evil. What? What does that mean? And how does that work with what we read at the beginning of this account? Go back to Genesis 6. What did he say? The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. So what does the Lord do? He's sorry that he made man and he's grieved. And so what does he do in response to that? He floods the earth. How is it that the exact thing that made him cast judgment on humanity in the earth is the thing that gets him to say, I will never do it again. Here's why. Because the Lord recognizes that this only depends on grace for humanity. There is no chance. There's no hope for humanity outside of his graciousness. This is the only chance right the lord is saying here the lord is saying here the very thing that caused me to destroy humanity in the first place will now be a sign of my grace to them because it's almost like at the beginning he said this is so awful this is so terrible and i'm going to judge them for it and then after he does it at the end he says i'm never going to do it again you know why because they have no hope without me. This is who they are. They, they can't change that. I'm not saying God excuses us. That's not what I'm trying to say. But it almost seems like it, right? It seems like they can't help it. This is who they are. I will never do it again to them because they cannot change the condition of who they are. The very reason that I judge them will now be the sign of the fact that I will show grace to them. Because they cannot change who they are. And so I will never curse them again. I will never curse the ground on their account again. Because they're always evil. They can't change that. And of course the thing that's left hanging is that we need the Lord to provide a way that we can change. And that's talked about, right? That, that's kind of the laying out of the rest of Scripture, isn't it? 
how is this way going to be provided that we won't always perpetually be bent toward evil? Well, at first, at the most basic level, at the most basic level, what it requires is God to offer us a grace that says, I won't do it again. Because I'll tell you what, we would have been destroyed a thousand times over. A million times over if we had to, if we were judged by this alone. The proclivity of our heart toward evil. Humanity never would have lasted. It is only on the graciousness of this promise to Noah and creation and Noah's day that we have a chance. A chance to even wait for redemption is because of this promise. He says, as long as the earth remains, the seasons and times of humanity will remain. They will exist. That's a promise. So, the Lord smells this this soothing aroma from from Noah's sacrifice, and it it seems that he is uh, uh, calmed. He's satisfied with this sacrifice that Noah offers. He says this, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now the fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are given. Right? And isn't that true, man? That's like one of my great heartbreaks in life is that animals won't just hang around you forever so you can get up and touch them. That's the way, right? This is the moment. This is the moment in Scripture where that's said. Animals will be terrified of you. They will not just sit in your presence. They're not going to get on the ark anymore, right? They're not all going to come up and just be okay with that, right? Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give it all to you, just as I gave you the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. The Lord, who had given every green plant for food, now says every living thing... I give into your hand, and you may eat it for food. Right? This is the, the meat eater's uh, promise. Right? This is the hunter's <laughs> promise. All of creation is given into humanity's hand for food. But he says this. He makes a specific point. Don't eat flesh with its life, meaning with its blood still in it. Why? Why? Surely I will require your lifeblood... From every beast I will require it, and from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. As for you, be fruitful and multiply. Populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. He doesn't say explicitly why not to eat flesh with the blood, but I think this explains it more clearly, which is this. In the blood is life. That's what he describes. The idea, the concept of blood is the life of the creature. And only one being is in possession of life. And that's God himself. So the Lord said, I give you living things to eat, but don't eat it with its life still in it. Because I'm the Lord of life. And life is mine to give or to take. And he goes on to say, And surely... Surely I will require 
the blood of every man. Every beast, every animal that kills a human will be called to account for taking man's life. Every man that takes a man's life will be called to account and they will be judged and their blood will be shed because they took an image bearer's life. This is serious language. This is language that talks about the reality of murder. Right? We've just seen this in the story of Cain and Abel. Clearly God's reflecting on that story. The life of man will be required. It will be required to be paid for. Because the life of an image bearer is immeasurably precious in God's sight. Anyone who takes the blood of, a, of an image bearer, they will be called to account. That's what he's saying. So God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you, and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. And what is the sign of that covenant? Verse 12, God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. There's a really odd dynamic about this covenant. And here's what it is. The sign of the covenant is almost exclusively, in every other example, a sign given to humanity. It's a sign given to humanity that humanity might look at it and remember who is their covenant God. Right? We'll see that when we get to Genesis 17 and we read about circumcision. We'll see that when, when we get to Genesis 15, we talk about the land. Right? The covenant of the land. They see the land. All these covenant signs are actually given for humanity. The, the Noahic, as it's called, covenant, Noah's covenant, is the sign of it is given for a different purpose, isn't it? And it's unique because it's actually a sign for God. Often we read this passage and we think, oh, every time I see a rainbow, I remember that God's watching over me. That's actually not what this says the sign is. The sign that God places between him and all creation is this. It's so that when the bow is in the cloud, he might see it and remember his promise to never do it again. The rainbow is not a sign for us, it's a sign for him. When you read that, uh, that, that passage from now on, and when you see a rainbow in the, in the clouds, uh, I hope you remember that. I hope you remember that God is in his, 
his throne room, looking at it and remembering his promise to never do what he did to us again. That's powerful. And it's missed. The Lord sets a covenant in which he says, this is all on my end. (laughs) This is for me to do. Nothing you do will change it. Nothing you can do can influence it. When I see that sign, I will remember, I will never do this to you again. I will act on that promise. I will actively, remember what I said about God remembering? God saying, I will actively stay my hand from judgment. That's powerful. And how many times, how many countless times that we will never know about that God has provided for us by that very sign. That we have deserved what was coming like the days of Noah. And God stayed judgment on us when he saw the sign of the everlasting covenant he set between all creation and him. That when he sees the sign of the covenant, when he sees the rainbow, he looks at it and says, I will not destroy you. That's active providence on his part. And again, as I studied this passage, I was just reminded how much do we rely on the active work of God to protect us. How many times, even individually, how many times in our lives that we will never even know about that God protected us, that God was watching out for us, that he prevented? How many things would have we would have shown up and something awful could have happened that God prevented us from making and we got irritated because we got caught in traffic or whatever. The Lord is at work. The Lord is at work providing for humanity. And I don't just mean his people. That's something we often forget too as Christians. I mean for humanity. This is not a promise to just Christians. This is a promise, a covenant between God and creation. Even the animals fall under this this covenant, don't they? He says, I made this covenant with you and every creature of the earth and with all of creation. The Lord is at work providing for and protecting what he's made. And it's through that unbelievable, tragic, horrific judgment that Noah, who's found the favor of God, was able to secure this promise for us. On the grace of God... There's no doubt. There's no doubt. Fully on the grace of God. But on the grace of God, Noah made it through the flood and was able to offer a pleasing sacrifice to the Lord. And the Lord promised in His kindness to never do that to us again. That's powerful. And I think about you, Lathan. I think about you this very week as I'm saying this. The Lord was watching over you. His hand was on you protecting you from something that very easily could have taken your life. Mm-hmm. There, was, there was no guarantee that you would have been protected from that fire. And the Lord in His kindness was looking out for you. It's powerful. Amen. So my prayer for you this week. We're not going to see it for a while. we got some sun. That's nice. <laughs> That's nice. When the rain returns, next time you see the rainbow, I hope you remember that. I hope you remember that it's a sign to the Lord himself of his protection and his providence for for humanity, for creation. 
All right, let me pray for you. Let me bless you. Lord, we are so grateful for your hand. Lord, a hand that too often we have not seen and, and cannot see, but we are so grateful that you do it nonetheless. You do it even when we're thankless and we offer no gratitude and even when we don't know you're doing it. And you are never, ever, ever uh, remiss to do it for us. You never are bitter or angry to protect your creation, God. And we are so grateful. And we all, with open hearts, thank you for all the times you've protected us in our lives. For all the times your invisible hand has been at work to watch over us, to keep us safe, and to, to make us who we need to be. God, thank you for mm. providence. Thank you for your active guidance of the world, that you are at work even today, and in our midst and in our hearts tonight. Lord, I pray we would see your hand so that we might show you uh, our gratitude, show you uh, how thankful we are for the type of God you are. And as Aaron's saying tonight, Lord, we're so grateful for your kindness. It is your kindness that leads us to repentance. It is your goodness that leads us to all that we have. It, it's, it is not because of something we've merited. It is because you've been at work and you've offered it to us. And we're so grateful for that. Thank you. Uh, Lord, we, we owe you more than we could possibly even fathom. And so we thank you for that tonight. Would you help each one of us see uh, a sign of your hand at work in our lives so that we might praise you and worship you for what you're doing. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jeremy.